It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The stores were just deserted. Now in New Delhi, in all of my visits over the past 20 years, I've never seen so many empty stores, jewelry stores, clothing stores, even sari emporiums, which do brisk business on a regular business day. Today on Benchmark, it's all about cash. Cold, hard cash. While it seems to be disappearing from people's daily lives in the developed world, where plastic or PayPal or Venmo, whatever you prefer, all those are ascendant, travel halfway around the world to India, and the opposite is true. Most Indians get paid in cash. If they want to save it, many do it the old-fashioned way. They stuff it into boxes or mattresses. Two years ago, some 233 million Indians, that's almost one-fifth of the population, didn't have a bank account at all. That same number, that's almost two-thirds of the population of the United States. I'm Scott Landman. With me in our Washington studio is my colleague, Sho Chandra, who was born and raised in India and happened to visit the nation in December. We're also joined remotely by Cornell professor Ishwar Prasad, who is also a Brookings Institution fellow and former official at the International Monetary Fund. Ishwar, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. And Sho, thanks for being with us in the studio, too. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. To your point, India's reliance on cash isn't just an inconvenience. It also creates opportunities for corruption and dodging taxes. That explains why Prime Minister Narain Modi suddenly announced in November that he would invalidate almost 90% of cash in circulation, making it worthless overnight. Everyone holding 500,000 rupee bills, which are worth about 7 and $15 each year, would be required to trade them in for brand new currency. Right. And that move sent hundreds of millions of people rushing to banks and waiting in crazy long lines, from what I've read, to exchange their money. It was a big mess, and the impact is starting to show. Not too long after India had surpassed China as the world's fastest growing major economy, it's now in danger of losing that title to the Middle Kingdom again. So, Ishwar, can you just walk us through why India would take such a drastic action like this? The objectives were noble ones, and I think um, there were multiple objectives, in fact. One, um, as Sho pointed out, was to try to deal with the corruption problem. A lot of uh, economic activity in India works through the shadow economy and on major transactions, say, for housing purchases. A significant Part of those transactions are conducted in cash in order to avoid the tax net. In addition, there was a big concern about a large number of counterfeit notes circulating in India. Um, 
uh, estimates suggest that a very significant proportion of the notes actually in circulation might have been um, counterfeit. So this was meant um, as a strike against the shadow economy, against counterfeit notes, and most importantly, against uh, corruption. The sense was that a lot of ill-gotten gains were being held in cash and that this move would be a strike against corruption. And in particular, um, this would be one reform where the rich, who presumably had slightly larger cash holdings, or in some cases much larger cash holdings than the poor, uh, would be much more severely affected. Of course, the implementation could have been done a little better, but then there is a question about whether in a country like India there is really an effective way to implement such uh, a dramatic move that strikes at the pocketbooks of the wealthy and the elites um, without doing it in a disruptive way. Um, I, too, was in India uh, in December, and I got the sense that while many um, lower and even uh, middle, middle-income class people um, did not like the implementation, they felt that finally Mr. Modi seemed to be taking a big hammer to corruption. So they were broadly supportive of the move, but certainly it could have been implemented better. So has it actually achieved the, the goals, even if whether or not people are in favor of it? Is, it? is it something that you can judge yet, or is it too soon? It's hard to say. Um, there was a sense that if a significant proportion of the currency didn't come back, that would imply that these had in fact been ill-gotten gains that the corrupt would not want to uh, sort of bring out into the open. Um, there was a tax amnesty put in place, the idea being that if um, there was money being held without uh, taxes having been paid on um, on the uh, income that created it, um, that uh, you could put the money back in the bank at new currency notes and pay um, a slightly higher tax than normal, but um, escape punitive measures. Um, based on all those indications, I think there is a sense that the amount of money that was um, brought back into the system was not as large as expected, but certainly it has put the fear of God into those who may have been using cash for corrupt transactions. Um, and I think it's had a positive effect, at least in terms of giving Mr. Modi some credibility if he were to use it to push forward more economic reforms and if he were to put in place more measures to tackle corruption. There's been some movement on that front, but not as much as I had hoped for, so we'll have to wait and see. Ishwar, you talked about implementation. Is there a better way to uh, tackle the goal that Prime Minister Modi had in mind? There was a shock value to it. Uh, understandably, uh, it couldn't have been announced ahead. But is there really something more that could have been done to ca tackle corruption, shrink the parallel economy? And what else is being done in India right now? So first, could there have been a less disruptive way to do this? That's... That would have been difficult, and this is where the um, difficulty lies, because it turns out that, um, as you pointed out earlier, India is an economy um, that runs largely on cash, and the um, value of the currency notes taken out of circulation by this move of taking out the 500,000 rupee notes amounted to about 86% of the value of notes in circulation. And in India, the, uh, there are some estimates that about two-thirds of all the cash in circulation is actually used for day-to-day uh, -day transactions. So that was a large hit uh, on the economy. But the significant thing uh, in that number, again, is that about one-third 
of the uh, cash um, that was out in circulation was not really circulating. It was uh, held as wealth. So that's where the hope was that there would be a hit in terms of corruption. Um, so I don't think there was a much better way to implement this, but certainly they could have acted faster once the act was put in place, uh, recalibrating the uh, ATM machines, getting new notes out into circulation. Um, that perhaps could have been done faster, but my sense, again, is that the Reserve Bank of India and the government were doing all they could to print notes quickly and get them out into circulation. What one was hoping Mr. Nodi would follow by was additional measures to deal with the corruption issue, in particular bringing uh, uh, financing of political campaigns more into the open. In the budget, there was a modest measure taken towards this end, um, but I think uh, a lot more needs to be done to deal with the root problem of corruption, including changing incentives for public officials to engage in corruption, which in turn would require reducing the intrusiveness of the government in the overall economy. On those fronts, a lot more remains to be done. So have they have they gotten through all these uh, implementation issues yet? Have things returned to normal yet in the country, or have they still got a ways to go? So um, speaking from personal experience, I was uh, in uh, Mumbai, the largest commercial capital in India, in mid-December, and virtually none of the ATMs, even in the commercial area, had any money in them. Um, by the end of December, which is about 45 days after the move had been announced, many, if not most of the ATMs, at least around the central area, did have uh, money and there weren't uh, long lines. Um, but the urban areas are not that representative. In fact, in the rural areas, I understand that there was uh, uh, much more disruption because that's a more cash-led economy. The interesting thing, however, is that uh, uh, I, of course, as an economist, could not resist asking every taxi driver, every Uber driver that I encountered how they felt about the move. And there was broad support for the intentions behind Mr. behind Mr. Modi's move. But as I started investigating further, certainly there were concerns that there was disruption in the rural and urban areas caused by this move, and people wished there had been less disruption. So my sense is that those problems have been dealt with to a significant extent. But really, the issue now is whether Mr. Modi has followed through in terms of the broader corruption uh, problem. So what, what about your experience? Did you have did you have similar impressions to what Ishwar was talking about when you were there a couple months ago? Similar and uh, different as well. I visited uh, New Delhi more than a month after the announcement. So this was around mid-December. Delhi, of course, is the capital of the country. You could see that the shock was over, but the pain was still rampant, and I felt it too. Uh, for one thing, the long lines, Ishwar touched on what was happening at the banks. I personally visited the bank. I had some old notes lying around. The lines stretched out the door around the block. Customers were getting impatient. The bank officials were harried. And everybody had to just wait in long lines um, to see how much bank uh, currency would be available. And then the bank officials would decide how much they were going to give you each day. If you wanted more, you had to come back the next day and stand in line all over again. In contrast, there was another very powerful visual which spoke to what's happening 
um, the impact on businesses and on the economy, the stores were just deserted. Now, in New Delhi, in all of my visits over the past 20 years, I've never seen so many empty stores, jewelry stores, clothing stores, even sari emporiums, which do brisk business on a regular business day. They just had people sitting around. Uh, the, the staff was, uh, you know, just waiting for customers to walk in. Grocery stores, the same thing. So business seemed to have come almost to a standstill uh, because people didn't have the money to pay and uh, the storekeepers didn't have um, any other means of accepting payment. And then finally, apart from these visuals, there was this feeling of fear of what's coming next. You'd have fresh rumors every day about what was going to happen. Uh, People were picking up the newspapers, listening to the radio and television. The rules were being made up as things uh, unfolded. And uh, to give the government uh, some credit, when they realized things were not going the right way, they were trying to adjust uh, things uh, to to make it easier. But of course, there was a lot of confusion and uh, people felt the pain. So so clearly, this was a disruptive event. Uh, the government just gave its budget presentation uh, a few days ago, where uh, I think they made some projections for the, the deficit in the economy, what would have to be done, or what kind of effects would it have on the economy. Is this a short-term disruption that will depress growth this year, Ishwar, or is this something that the, the, that the ripple effects could be felt for some years to come? There are two ways of thinking about it, Scott. One is that this has created a lot of uncertainty in the um, business climate and, as uh, Show pointed out, in terms of consumption, which is um, an important driver of growth uh, in India. And that's not good for growth. On the other hand, if this is seen as one of many reforms that have been instituted and are coming and signals that Mr. Modi is finally getting serious about the big reforms that are necessary to get growth going, that could stimulate more investment, that could stimulate more foreign capital inflows and have a positive effect on long-term growth. And this should be seen in the context of some things that have been accomplished over the last year. Um, The implementation of the goods and services tax is now on track. Um, It's gotten through um, Parliament, although the implementation is still uh, being delayed for some uh, technical reasons. There was a bankruptcy law put in place last year. There have been a few other uh, reforms. So it's seen in that light, it seems that Mr. Modi is finally using his political mandate to start rolling out some bigger reforms, even while maintaining some discipline on the fiscal side. Uh, The latest budget that you mentioned does allow for a little bit of slippage on the uh, fiscal targets. Um, But I think overall, it's gone down quite well in terms of uh, uh, not too many populist measures and overall a reasonable amount of fiscal discipline. So if the government can maintain um, discipline on the fiscal front with inflation um, seeming to be under um, reasonable control, um, and if Mr. Modi starts rolling out some big ticket reforms, that could be enough to solidify confidence that the economy is on the right track, that Mr. Modi is serious about um, economic reforms, and that could have a positive effect on growth. But if all this disruption turns out to be for naught in terms of Mr. Modi not using the additional support he has gained uh, right now to push forward b- big economic reforms, that could be a damper on growth both in the short term as well as in the long term. 
So what's the bottom line here? Putting aside the questions of whether the GDP numbers in India and in China are credible or not, as as you're very familiar with those issues, will India continue to grow at a faster pace than China, or is China going to take that back? Well, India has all the potential to grow much faster. And if you think about the relative sizes of the economies, uh, China is now an $11.5 trillion economy. India is barely $2 trillion. Um, so India could certainly um, grow much, much uh, uh, faster, given that it has a much uh, lower base to begin with. But in India, growth does remain fragile to some extent because of the age-old problems uh, making it hard for the manufacturing sector to gain traction, although it has done somewhat better in recent months. The services sector, again, has been doing reasonably well, although there are concerns about whether it has enough uh, momentum. Um, but I think getting beyond the short-term issues, um, unless India can tackle the big long-term problems that um, where the list has not changed over time, having to deal with infrastructure, improving the banking system, getting the labor market fixed. Unless those big changes are made, I think India's growth, even if it uh, does tick up a little above China's growth, is going to remain fragile for a while. Could there be any consequences in India besides the economic impact of this move? There are some important state elections coming up in the next few weeks uh, or few months. Um, and um, uh, how Mr. Modi's party does in those elections could um, end up determining whether he uh, starts taking a more populist turn or rides the wave of uh, some support that he has received um, from this recent move and pushes forward um, using the political capital as he has gained to uh, get some economic reforms underway. And that will um, have a big impact. Um, on India's growth, again, both in the short and long terms. All right. Well, Ishwar, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a really fascinating conversation. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on, and good talking to you too, Show And Show, thank you too. Thanks. All right. Well, Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, our newly revamped Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Ishwar is at, at E-S-W-A-R-S-P-R-A-S-A-D. And show is at, at show, S-H-O, Chandra, C-H-A-N-D-R-A. And Ishwar, your uh, recent book on China's renminbi is called? Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renminbi. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.